What's the word? Spilling that tea all on the curb. I'm not trying to be nosy, but I gotta know everything you heard. We gotta know what's going on. He did what? Now that was wrong. What's the latest trends of fashion? Tell me what's your favorite song. Who you reading? What you reading? What you watching? What's the season? Are there twists for the finale? Cause we gonna need a better reason. Who's improving the community? Bring the focus back to unity. Gotta do something more than plan. Listen up and take a stand. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Don't be mad, I'm just in my bag, 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 bag. You gon' get a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Why you mad? I'm just in my bag, bag, bag. Who are we? DHA. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Don't be mad, I'm just in my bag, 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 bag. Get a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Why you mad? I'm just in my bag, bag, bag. Who are we? All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Whatever time you're listening to this, I am your host John Torrance, and you're listening to In My Bag podcast. This is season two, episode four, and I have someone very special. What I think is very special. I'm very happy that he accepted my request to be um, a guest host on this podcast. Um, Charles Stephens. Stephens, right? I'm so sorry. I meant to ask you that before. It's, it, it's Stevens. Stevens. But... Stevens. My fault. I'm sorry. No, no reason. Every, every, everyone, everyone says that, so it's totally cool. <laughs> and it's crazy because I was like, one of my questions was, before I hit record, I was like, please, just answer his name. And I was like, that totally slipped my mind. But whatever. It's a great, ice, it's a great icebreaker. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Stevens. Yes. So um, thank you again for being a guest host on my podcast. Um, those who don't know who uh, Charles is, he is the founder and executive director of Counter Narrative Project. Um, mm-hmm. He's committed to working um, at the intersection of art, culture, and social justice. Um, Charles served as the conference organizer for the historic 2014 conference, Who's Beloved Community, Black, Civil, and LGBT Rights at Emory University. He also led the innovative social marketing campaign from campaign from Where I Stand for Aid Atlanta. Uh, the anthology he co-edited, Black Gay Genius, was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. Uh, he received the Georgia State University College of Arts and Sciences Outstanding Alumni Award and received the Gentleman of the Year Award from the Gentleman's Foundation. He has also been a CDC Institute for HIV Prevention Leadership Fellow, an Arcus Foundation Executive Director Fellow, and a Rockwood Leader in the HIV Movement Fellow. His writings have appeared in the AGC, Atlanta Magazine, and Creative Local. He previously wrote a column for Advocate Magazine and Georgia Voice focused on Black LGBTQ plus politics and culture. A native Georgian, Charles received his BA from Georgia State University, and he also is a member of the Alliance Theater Advisory Board. That basically sums you up, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I Thank just wanted to let a... people know. 
Yeah, I'm, so, imp- I, I'm so impressed by the introduction. <laughs> oh, no problem. No problem at all. <laughs> um, so again, I want to thank you so much um, for accepting my request. Um, as every guest host comes on my podcast, I always want to uh, let them share their coming out story. Um, it's funny because a lot of my guest hosts that have been on, they've all been fairly good coming out stories, you know, especially us, you know, in the black gay community. um, We hear all these, you know, negative and crazy stories that happen um, when people come out in our community, but haven't had too much of that. (laughs) So um, I definitely would love to hear your coming out story and how that all panned out to be. Yeah, well, as you were beginning to ask me about the coming out story, I was really having to think about it. Well, let me just say I'm from the South. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Now it's Mm -hmm. seen as this kind of Black LGBTQ, the headquarters, I guess you will. (laughs) Exactly. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all, or maybe it was, but when you're growing up here, especially when I was growing up in the, in the nineties, I had no idea about that. And so I didn't really see many affirming representations of myself, many images of myself. It was, you know, it was definitely a mixture of things. Mm -hmm. I think there were, you know, many signs, many messages that I received that suggested to be black and gay was unacceptable, an abomination. Mm-hmm. But I also, you know, received messages that I can be whoever I wanted to be. I mean, especially as a, you know, growing up as a black kid in Atlanta. Right. right. So I, I kind of had this sort of mixture of feelings in general about myself. You know, I always say that I think when you're black, and you grow up in Atlanta. I mean, it's I mean, at least for me, it was just such an amazing time. I always saw and grew up around and just mm-hmm. had this feeling that I mean, I could just do I mean, I, I obviously was very aware and conscious about white supremacy and racism. I, was, I never had any illusions about that. But I also just had this um, belief in myself and that I, I could just, you know, be in, be in whoever I wanted to be essentially. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, and then I started becoming aware of my, you know, being gay and that (laughs) sort of complicated that. How old were you when that happened? Well, you know, it was such a process and such a journey. I remember being 12 years old and reading James Baldwin's novel Just Above My Head, which is my favorite James Baldwin novel, where he mm-hmm. talks very, where he, you know, writes this very beautiful narrative in part that grapples with, um, you know, uh, the re- romantic relationships between Black men. Uh, mm-hmm. I think some of the, the most gorgeous and stunning and breathtakingly beautiful writing I've ever witnessed um, about romantic uh, and sexual relationships between black men I've found in that novel. So that was really right. kind of like, um, you know, part of it just, you know, coming across this, you know, incredible novel and um, putting it, putting into language some of what I was feeling. And then later I remember just starting to, yeah, becoming self-aware and starting to have feelings and, I think it was around the time I was about 15 when I, you know, finally admitted to myself that I was gay. 
-hmm. I think with many of us, our coming out process, it begins as an internal process. It becomes a process of self-awareness and just being able to just admit it, just to admit the feelings or admit Mm -hmm. what's going on. And then from there, I started, you know, making friends and making other gay friends. I mean, I was in high school. I had, you know, we had our own little sort of network of of other black gay kids around Atlanta. Mm-hmm. We went to different mm-hmm. high schools. Actually, some kids were in my high school, and you know, we looked out for each other. We had our own support system, and I think that also empowered me. Just being able to have other teenagers at the time that I could be friends with, that I can confide in, that I can share my fears with, that I can share my mm-hmm. hopes with, mm-hmm. and. That really, I think, put me on a path to be able to be empowered, to stand up for myself. Um, I will say that, (laughs) and I don't know why I did this. I mean, I think (laughs) if you knew me at the time, you probably would understand my Mm -hmm. thinking. But I actually started coming out publicly before I even told my family about it. So they kind of found out on the news and you know i was like i remember yeah like i remember when i was about i think i was maybe 19 or so i Mm -hmm. well i think the first interview i gave i was maybe 18 or so and it was about matthew shepherd like i think that was Mm -hmm. around the time that he was murdered and i remember (laughs) giving this interview about it and so that kind of did a thing even though i didn't like i didn't say i was gay in the interview i mean just right talking about lgbt youth issues put me in, in, in a certain context and then um yeah I remember being I remember being <laughs> now mind you I hadn't talked to my family yet but I decided that I should be the spokesperson for this queer youth march or I should be I think I was a media <laughs> and it didn't even occur to me that I should talk to my family but I decided like I decided I just woke up and decided I was gonna be out like it was I just decided that I'm gonna you know be this person and had not talked and I think on some level I thought that I didn't need to do that, that they should just get with the program, essentially. So I, I mm-hmm. gave this interview and I remember it, you know, it was on the local news and everybody in Atlanta saw this interview where I was, again, the spokesperson for this queer youth march. And I was talking all about issues impacting, you know, LGBT youth and everyone saw it. And that was I guess that was me being publicly out. And so it everyone, <laughs> everyone got to see it, it was like broadcast everywhere. And um, oh yeah, it was interesting. It was it was definitely interesting. I mean, let me just say that I think the only luck in the world you get is your family, your parents. And I had amazing parents. I had extraordinary parents. And my parents had me later in the life. They had me later in life, so they were much older when I was born. And so they were from yeah, a completely different. My mom was different... too. My mom really? was too. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of understand. Me. Yeah, she had me. I think she was thirty-seven. And she had me right now that's like you know <laughs> the norm the norm right so my mom too. my mom was 36 and she had me mm-hmm. in 1980 so people were just mm-hmm. like what it, what in the world like they thought she was and i'm 40 now so i'm like wow mm-hmm. i can't even imagine but she right. had me when she was 36 and you know so my parents were from you know very much jim crow south but they were they were i mean well my mom died when i was 17 so we didn't get to have the conversation but my father was he was cool like he told me until the day he died that he was proud of me and there was never any i mean and that's why let me to go full circle i do looking back i wish i had prepared my family especially my father more for what it means to have a kid that is a public that's choosing to be an advocate to be an activist that's using his voice using his platform because people would direct stuff at him and i don't know if he was prepared or equipped to answer certain questions that people were giving him about mm-hmm, me mm-hmm, and so looking right. back i wish i had given him and you know later on we 
we kind of talked about some stuff but again i'm just really grateful for my parents and you know i'm not gonna act like all of my experiences growing up as a black gay kid in atlanta teenager were perfect i mean there were many very hard and very difficult times but i also had some amazing times and i and i think my experience has been one where i've seen the worst of the worst and i've seen the best of the best yeah you know i think growing up especially in a um urban community you know you if and being black and gay it's kind of like uh you do have those bullies you do have those people talking about you but for some reason in um i know my life the good really outweighs the bad yeah um and you know of course i was teased about my voice and how my mannerisms were and you know they were telling me i was gay at like nine years old (laughs) but um for some reason it's just the good really outweighed the bad one i'd say because i play basketball i play sports so i was like basketball kind of like saved my life just because in high school you know i was this athlete a good athlete at that um um but so no one really paid me any mind um but on the flip side of that there were gay people in my high school that were teased every day Mm. and um you know and the crazy part was they were white and they were getting teased by the black kids and you know it's funny because it was like well i'm black and gay but they're not really teasing me as much you know i don't know it was just it's weird but you know the good definitely outweighed the uh outweighed the bad yeah, I think my response to a lot of that was just to be exceptional, to be thrice as good, to try and use whatever achievements I had, particularly academically, to 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 use it as a shield, to use it as a way to keep people from like I I don't know, like it was just kind of like my 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 shield and my weapon in a way. And so, and I think, and I, I meet so many other, you know, black gay boys that grew up with that too, that sense of just uh, almost mm-hmm. like trying to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, so you may, you know, make fun of the way I may hold my hand or the way I might sit in a chair, or you may try to like with all the scrutiny that so many of us face, but in a way it's almost like if I can achieve enough, if I can be exceptional enough, you don't really look at me, you look at my achievements. So it becomes a kind of, shield that I, I try to keep from letting people like pay too close attention to me i don't know it's such a such a uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. crazy thing yeah so was there a reason why you didn't come out earlier when you knew that you were or and you waited that's so funny no one's ever asked me that before um i mean i think coming out at 18 was pretty impressive actually 1998 that's true, but, that's true. <laughs> you know, no, it's so funny. I love that you asked me that. Because um, I guess now coming out of 18 probably isn't as much of a thing. Right. But yeah, at the time, because, right. you know, this is like 1997, 1998. And there were no, there just, you know, there wasn't, there weren't, there wasn't, there weren't TV shows. This is pre-Noah's Ark, mm-hmm. pre-Pose, pre-all of that. And it wasn't that. really talked about either. It wasn't, or, well... It was so everyone has a gay uncle, right? Or you know, there I do, people, I do. right? <laughs> um, so I mean, people knew LGBTQ people, but and yet there's also this incredible silence. It's 
contradiction that I still can't even wrap my brain around that even though people know gay people might have gay people in their family, then there's also this kind of, because even when I, you know, especially earlier on when I would come out, people were not, they weren't shocked that I was gay. They were shocked that I would tell, that I would say it, that I would put it into words. I think that's mm -hmm. what struck mm -hmm. them. Like they're comfortable. It's almost like they're used to seeing gay people. They know what gay is and, and, and they're, they're, it's discernible to them. It's legible to them. But there's something about when you put it into words, when you say it, let alone stand up for yourself. Mm -hmm. It just, I mean, I remember like having conversations at barbershops and all these kinds of places where I would actually say it. And I would, you know, tell barbers, I'm like, I know I'm not by far your only gay customer. So why are you surprised? It's like, yeah, they don't say it. Yeah. And it would just uh -huh. shock them that I would talk. And this is maybe like in the early 2000s. So, I mean, I'm happy now. I mean, we could have a longer conversation about the plight of the LGBTQ community. You were definitely and... bold back then. You were bold. I felt a <laughs> sense of responsibility. You know, I mm -hmm. felt, mm -hmm. I mean, because to talk about my coming out experience is also to talk about my political awakening, is to talk about my sort of intellectual journey. So I remember being 18 and 19 and reading this poet by the name of Essex Hemphill. Um, he was this incredible blackie poet. Quoted activist. on your website, actually. Yeah, quoted on my website, right? So I remember learning about Essex, Bayard Rustin and James Baldwin and, and Audre Lorde and Essex, like all these people. And I felt this responsibility. Even at 18, I felt that they had fought and died and done all kinds of stuff to make it possible for me. And that I had a responsibility to, to pay it forward, to really build on their legacy. And so I felt like I didn't have the luxury of being complacent or of being silent or of being cowardly, that I owed it to the ancestors, the elders, specifically as it relates to black LGBTQ people, that I that I that I have to that I can't be silent. And so I really carried that with me. I remember so uh, again as I was coming out, you know, I did have a moment again when I was 18, 19 years old where I was like, well what am I doing? what does this mean and and what about my future and and what happens and and i so i i've i came i had this book it was called brother to brother it's an anthology of, of black women's writings and i mm -hmm. you know took this book out with me and i just opened it up and i started reading the introduction written by essex and phil and i don't know it's like it's almost like essex and phil was speaking to me from beyond and just saying you know what charles you you know, I'm passing this torch to you. And by no means would I try to compare myself with someone as great as he was and is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I felt, again, this responsibility that if it were not for those that came before me, I mean, even then I had a sense of I would be locked up. I would be, I mean, all kinds of things that happened to gay people, you know, forever. And um, yeah, I was like, I, I can't, I can't be complacent that I have to use my voice and whatever talents and skills I have to try to advocate for social justice. And speaking on that, I definitely want to gear into your organization. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, your organization is great. I definitely want you to speak more, you know, about the organization that you, that you, you know, that you created, you know, that you found, um, Counter Narrative Project. What was the reasoning behind the name, you know? Um, mm -hmm. what, what do you want to get out of, you know, this organization that you created and, you know, founded for, you know, these black gay, these black gay men? 
Yeah, well, again, I think to talk about the founding of, of Counter Narrative Project or CMP as we call it, is to just recognize all of the, the various forces and convergences that contributed to the organization manifesting. Um, one was, so this used to happen a lot, you know, maybe 10 years ago, probably not as much now, but, you know, sometimes we would Google black gay men or black gay men and look at the things that would come up in the search results and, you know, interesting things would come up, but like rarely were there any things that, you know, things that were affirming or things that were powerful or things that just made us feel good about ourselves. And so, um, you know, we, I just found myself very hungry for representations of myself as a black gay man that was that was affirming that really i thought offered an authentic perspective on my experience that i thought shared some insight about my story like those were the things that i was looking for and they i just didn't see a lot of them at the time existing so that mm -hmm. was part i mean not to say they didn't exist but they weren't there weren't that many and it was like not hard it was kind of hard to find and another thing, and to answer your question, you know, more directly, I, you know, I wanted to create a political home for Black gay men. Like I wanted to create, like, the, you know, these awful things would happen. And I, and I just was like, we need that. We need to be a force. We need to be powerful. We need to have a political home. We need. And so I started trying to construct that around CMP, building an entity that could be that could that could serve as a, a a training ground and a focus point and a just a space where we could just always be prepared for whatever we're facing and then finally mm -hmm. i also wanted to build an organization very much as a love letter to folks that came before us like baird rustin like Essex Hemphill, like Marlon Riggs, like Joseph Beam, like Craig Harris, like Donald Woods. Like I really wanted to build an organization on the dreams and visions that they shared through their writings and through their art and through their films. And so, you know, a question that I asked myself and I still ask myself is, you know, what would it mean to build an organization based on the joy and pleasure and power of black gay men. Because at the time, you know, when I founded CMP in 2014, I think a lot of the programming and institutions were really built on our pain. And again, that's not, I think that that's, we obviously need to grapple with and reckon with our pain. I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, diminishing that, but right. I was very curious right. about, well, what would it look like if we built an organization based on our pleasures and our deepest desires and our joy? Like, what would that look like? What, what does it mean when you ask a black gay man what brings you joy and how can we program and create and organize around that so those were really the things that I was grappling with um when i founded cmp back in april 2014 i i was working somewhere and you know i put in my letter of resignation i was like you know what i'm oh, gonna go wow. take a chance on myself i'm gonna create this mm -hmm. organization i'm gonna be an entrepreneur and we'll see what happens and you know and it's here going we are. great <laughs> do you think that there is do you, so I have a few questions. So do you think that there is a stereotype of black gay men? Let me, and let me also respond to that too. I, I meant to also, uh, a point about that, right? So when we talk about, so when I think about the counter narrative project, when I, when I think about what it means to counter the narrative, I don't believe that there is 
a perfect narrative that I think we should counter to. Mm -hmm. When I think about countering the narrative, I think about a proliferation of narratives. I think about all kinds of narratives, all kinds of stories, good, bad, uh, like all narratives, even imperfect narratives, right? Like I don't believe there's a perfect, I don't believe there's a perfect narrative. I think we all have complicated narratives and I want there to be space for that. So, I mean, are there stereotypes? Absolutely. But I also don't want to be so obsessed with trying to be the opposite of whatever I think a stereotype is mm -hmm. that I end up creating a different kind of violence or a different kind of erasure at the same time. You know, my dream and my vision is that we have, I think the way to address stereotypes is not to try to create the opposite of whatever we think the stereotype is. I think it's to create lots of different representations and lots of different narratives that we have so many that you can't possibly reduce it to just exactly. one exactly. that it that, that there are all the possibilities mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um that's definitely true i definitely understand um and so what kind of um programming does cmp you know does cmp do um because i love you know the brands that you have um the reckoning <laughs> um I think that it's something that's needed. I think that you have a great, great, great editor-in-chief in Darian Aaron. Um, I've been following him for a long time now because um, my background is journalism. So mm -hmm. black journalism, black journalist to another one, I'm like, I give my hats off to him because I, I've been seeing him move mm -hmm. throughout the years, especially I followed his... Um, his blog years ago and i think that the writings are definitely um and the stories are is it's impeccable i really like it um do you think that um there's not a lot of um like acknowledgement to you know the black gay writers um in the past like you know coming up do you think that it's not really spoken about or talked about Mm. yeah i remember learning about the harlem renaissance from elementary school or something or at least high school and it was earth shattering to me to learn that in the harlem renaissance many of them were queer right but that wasn't taught in high school so you know we're reading langston hughes and county cullen mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh you know we're reading uh you know some of these figures zora Neale hurston and um you know wallace thurman and you know and we're not we're not taught that and we and and so we it's almost like they uh sanitize their writing or they try to make it um take it out of context and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when I started learning about all the queer folks and queer contributions through the Harlem Renaissance, Richard Bruce Nugent, for goodness sake, Smoke Lilies and Jade. And, you know, I just, it, it, it blew my mind because I understood that there was a tradition and a lineage that I was a part of, that there have always been Black queer folks, that we've always existed and that we not only have existed, but we've been indispensable to black culture if anything we've been on the vanguard of black culture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i and i think that that's just something that should be you know continued to be to be discussed um you know from that period to 
you know, the McCarthy era and with Lorraine Hansberry and James Baldwin and, you know, through, I mean, there's just, just this amazing tradition that we're all a part of. And I, and I really do hope that we all do a better job of amplifying Black LGBTQ movement history and um, certainly the writers and, and, and cultural workers. Uh, what about yourself? What do you what what do you consider the state of the state of black writing, black media, black storytelling? Like, what's your take on the landscape? Um, you know, growing up, I'm gonna say starting out growing up, I was in you know an avid reader. Um, you know, throughout elementary school and middle school, um, and high school, but somehow it drifted off, and maybe because what I was reading just wasn't relatable to me. Um, and I just, I just stopped, you know, <laughs> I stopped. But I definitely think that there should be, one, I graduated from an HBCU. If I knew of, you know, a course that offered, you know, um, learnings and stuff about, you know, black, write, black gay writers, I would have signed up immediately. You know, um, I definitely think that that should be something, you know, included in HBCU programs um, because I did take, you know, um, black history and black literature courses. But if and which is, you know, is good, but, you know, I'm a black gay male. If I could, you know, really read those writings or if I knew of those people you know, um, I definitely would have signed up. But with, I think that gay, black gay media, I think it's still just, I don't think that there's still not enough good, good content out there because mm -hmm. I think that, you know, definitely you have your poses and you have other things, but there's also a lot of, um, I feel like the black gay community is just, so it's so just cultural based like we just offer so much and it's not it's not publicized it's not you know it's always you know in media and entertainment the token black guy or something like that but you know i definitely would really i think that carlos king does a good job um i think he did a good job of styling hollywood to show black a black gay couple um, I don't know if you watch Style in Hollywood, but um, on Netflix, it was a black gay couple. One was a stylist and one was an interior designer. But just to see the inner workings of black gay professionals on TV, really, you know, not all about the drama, really making it through society as a, you know, a black gay couple. It just was like, it was an eye opening experience, you know, um, me growing up in college, you know. I played basketball, not college basketball, but you know, I'm an athlete. And when I saw Shirts and Skins on Logo, which was about a black, I mean, which was about a gay basketball team, mm -hmm. I wanted to pass out. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I didn't know it was people like me out there. You know, it was just something that I never, I just never knew because it wasn't showcased before. And I think that there's a lot that still needs to be showcased on a national scale to really touch these, you know, these this younger generation, you know, 
um, because it's like, it's just, you know, seeing something on TV, seeing something um, that really just touches you, it's a feeling that you would never ever, it's just, it's an eye-opening experience, you know? Um, and from there, you know, that's when I did my research. All, some, as long as you see something that really in, that interests you and touches you either on TV or in the newspaper or books, if it as soon as it touches you, you're going to research it. You're going to research everything. And, you know, from there, I did my research. You know, now I play in National Gay Basketball Tournament tonight. Really? National Gay Travel Team. And it's like those Wait, how, experience- how, how tall are you? I'm 6'2". Oh my God, you're tall. <laughs> I guess it makes sense for you to play basketball. That's so incredible. <laughs> yeah, so I'm 6'2". And, you know, just from that show, Shirts and Skins, just it kind of like molded me and it kind of like knew that there was something, that, that, that it was something bigger out there that really I could just enjoy. And See, for my actually. generation, for my cohort, we didn't really have, oh my God, now I feel like I'm a hundred years old. You know, back in my, well, we didn't, we, so we had, we had books, right? So we had, I mean, there was Elin Harris novels, like Invisible Life and Just As I Am. And, uh, and he talked a lot about, you know, uh, black athletes. And mm-hmm. then there was James O'Hardy. And so there was B-Boy Blues and Second Time Around. And so those books, I mean, especially when I was in high school, I think played a, a, an important part. Cause that's where we started to see ourselves. Like, so, you know, there weren't really, I mean, I can't even remember the first. <laughs> I think, I think the closest thing I can think about in terms of uh, Black LGBTQ representation was uh, a mixture of um, in living colors, men on film sketch. I don't know mm-hmm, if the mm-hmm, audience knows mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, and then yeah. there was there was a television show called Rock that came on, starring Charles Dutton. And I remember there was this episode where his dad, if I'm not mistaken, his dad came out and was marrying a white dude or something like that. Um, I think the dad was played by Richard Roundtree. Uh, somebody might need to uh, to, to Google check. But I, I think that, <laughs> but I, I, I just, and I was like a kid then, and, and that mm-hmm, was really, mm-hmm. oh, and you know what else? There was the real world. Oh, oh but they didn't really yeah. have any, wait, they didn't have any black hair characters on there in, until later, I think. I think it was until Karamo. Karamo was the first black, um, the black gay one that was on the real world. Mm-hmm. And that was probably like, I think I was in college by then, but from, you know, season one was what, like 1992 mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's so amazing now that there are TV programs that, because when I talk to younger, particularly, I think uh, maybe younger millennials, maybe even Gen Z, they're more inclined to have like, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race or Pose, some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, taking some of the a little mm-hmm. bit older, we'll talk about Noah's Ark as being this very defining. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, and it's funny to me because, you know, when Noah's Ark came out, I was probably in my mid twenties. I was, you know, far further along. And so it's just like, oh wow, what a different era that that's, that's they can go to that. And, and how amazing is that to have this, this media available to them? But I wonder why these um black uh these black gay shows that do come out have a shorter time period on on television you know mm-hmm. shirts and skins was only one season noah's ark was two seasons you know 
let's go into teabag segment <laughs> during this conversation. Let's get, let's get to pose, it. <laughs> that pose, you know, is ending on its third season. You know, when a lot of these other, um, you know, a lot of these other programs, you know, last for a long, long period of time. Will and Grace lasted how many seasons? Like eight or or like ten seasons, you know. And then came back um, for for another round. <laughs> yeah, and then came back, and it's just like yeah. I wonder why these, um, you know, these black gay shows only have a shorter, you know, shorter mm-hmm. period of time on television when they have a huge audience. Huge yeah. audience watching. I mean, especially even looking at the success of Moonlight. Oh my gosh, it was like this hugely wild. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. I mean, not a black gay film explicitly, but you know, it's something that resonates with our community for right. you know for a variety right. of reasons. Um, hugely successful. I mean, I think there are so many examples, time and time again, of there being an audience, there being um, a hunger for it. But I, I don't know. It's it's really maybe it's maybe you have maybe you have to write the show that lasts for ten seasons. Do you? Oh, do you let write, me tell you. you okay, I have so many ideas in my <laughs> mind I can't even function and I really? think it's just and it's just like from life experiences and you know growing up in an urban community and just yeah. you know going through Wait. basketball and all that stuff it's just like I have all these ideas yeah literally on paper <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know why there's not a reality show about a, a, a basketball, a black, or, you know, uh, is it the lead, is it like a sort of LGBT basketball yeah, league? Yeah, so or it's is LGBT. It... Um, the, so I was in, when I lived in New York for three years, I was in the New York Gay Basketball League. Mm-hmm. And then from there, um, the National Gay Basketball Association, they offer like three national tournaments a year. Yeah. And so my friends asked if I wanted to play on their travel team. So I traveled to California, Texas, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and just, you know, for my 30th birthday a couple of years ago, we traveled to Paris for the gay games. And it's like the gay Olympics. And we played against teams from Hong Kong and, you know, from everywhere around the world <laughs> i think so, that's i think um, that's your story i think that mm-hmm. would be such an amazing like i would watch that <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's definitely don't get me wrong it's entered the stuff that goes on and we have airbnbs and stuff so oh, the stuff wow. that you could imagine mm. goes on but you know sometimes when i go on these trips i sit around and i just I literally want to just burst out in tears because it's just like all these people, you know, these group of guys that have the same similarities and fell in love with the same sport I fell in love with. It's it's touching, you know, and it brought us all together. Basketball brought us all together and we can be ourselves. It seems like there was a period a few uh, several years ago where there was a lot of conversation about gay athletes. And I think a lot of them, well, it seems like a lot of them were black, black 
black gay men that were athletes. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them and came I, out. But I haven't heard as much about it. Have there been any other folks that have been recruited? Like I know, was it Michael Sam and so many other? No, not to my knowledge, but there was like an influx, like, okay, is everyone gonna come out now? Like it was <laughs> like, it was like a huge thing. And, um, but not to my knowledge, not right now. And you know, a lot of these, people that play in these tournaments with me are like D1 basketball players. Like they went to DePaul, they went to these big schools, wow. but you know, they just, they either never came out or, you know, they just hid. And, you know, so it's definitely stories there. And that's what I'm saying with the black gay culture. It's stories everywhere in this, it has to be showcased, you know, you know, just my story alone could touch someone. Just your story mm-hmm. alone will touch someone. And, um, you know, I definitely can say that something, you know, that was on TV touched me. And it just, you know, from watching that TV show, it just, it did something to me. So, yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> it's a lot. But I think that we'll get there. I think that we'll get there. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Because there's so many Black queer content creators now. Like, my goodness, like on YouTube, on um, you know, like there are all these web series. So there it's I'm mm-hmm. I'm both mm-hmm. sad at the short, the seemingly limited shelf life of some of our shows, but in the mainstream, but oh my gosh, with you know, with people being able to produce a lot of their own content just with either their phones or whatever, like mm-hmm. I'm just mm-hmm. I'm so impressed with the creativity of our community and just all these content creators that are telling their story. Oh, yeah. And they're not. And the thing is, what I like about it is they're not waiting for anyone to come to them. They're doing it on, you know, by themselves. They're doing it on their own because they're saying, why should I wait for a Netflix or, you know, a Hulu or Amazon to come, you know, scoop me up when I can just put out my content on YouTube. I can put my content on Instagram and have, you know, a quicker, a quicker, um, you know, a quicker viewing and don't have to wait and all that. So I definitely think I'm definitely a fan of a few web series um, on YouTube, which I definitely enjoy. Who do you, which um, ones do you like? like? So I like personally, I like Chasing Dallas, um, Chasing Atlanta, the whole Chasing series, the whole Chasing franchise. I definitely love, um, especially Atlanta, because there are people who are actually doing something <laughs> that are actually, you know you know, really, really, um, they're just moving and you see them, you know, it's just not a group of random people that just was like, well, let's just, you know, let's just fight and let's just have all this. No, they really dive deep into their stories and into their, you know, their creativities and their work life. You know, um, Oliver Twix is on Chasing Atlanta and, you know, he's now on BTV with T.S. Madison. So it's just, you know, it's a lot of different people that are moving and shaking in the Chase and Atlanta franchise. And it's literally like watching Love and Hip Hop, but the gay version on um, on YouTube, but you know, with with better stories, I should say. Uh, how about you? Do you know any um, YouTube series? Yeah, I think like? I've, yeah, I, I just feel like I, watch so many uh different kinds of youtube content uh i tend to watch a lot of (laughs) one of my guilty pleasures and i don't think i've ever told anyone before so you get the scoop one of my guilty (laughs) pleasures is i like uh watching people review reality shows (laughs) 
<laughs> you so know I what? Gonna... A lot of people love that. You're I don't know why I get man. such a kick out of that. So, you know, you see a lot of, you know, Black queer folks in that space that do these really interesting reality show recaps. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I just follow, you know, a lot of different people and just kind of watch, watch their stories. I'm not sure if it's as popular. I feel like a lot of, um, there were a lot of folks that kind of got on board really early on on the whole YouTube thing. I feel like now with like mm -hmm. Instagram lives and Facebook, I mean, people just, there are so many ways that people can just get their story out that I'm not even sure. Um, but I do want to uh, pivot a bit to just uh, the larger conversation about Black queer content creation. Oh my gosh, um, Lovecraft Country. That was one of my mm -hmm. best, I think. Like, did you watch it? Yep, I watched it. I watched it. That, I think it was episode eight or nine, like where they went back to like Tulsa when they went back to Oklahoma, and mm -hmm. you know, the, yeah, you got the backstory with the with the dad, the Michael K. Williams character. Yeah, I, I yes. was just some of the best black queer storytelling I think I've ever. I mean, it was just the impact, like the you know him as a, a young boy and what he went through. I mean, again, I know there was some very triggering stuff in the you know in the in the in the series with the character especially, but. You know, it was just like one of those moments where I thought they spoke to my spirit, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that whole that whole series is just, that show is really good. And yeah. just being a Black person, period, I think it touched on a lot of different aspects. You know, we don't talk about Black science fiction enough, you know? Yeah. Um, and that definitely, you know, I spoke to one of my old coworkers and she loves Black science fiction and I was like, you need to watch this because this oh, is yeah. down, you know, this is your alley, you know. Right. But they touched on, you know, Black science fiction. They touched on, you know, the Black gay movement and all these other different movements. And it's just, it was, it's a really, really good show. So I don't know. I, I think it's coming back for another season. Yeah, I was going to ask, not, is that, is that connected? That. <laughs> yeah, is that connected to the one season thing? Because I, I, I kind of, I wasn't sure if they were going to get a season two. So I was like, is that a part of the how like oh, so many of our man. shows I don't right know. and then <laughs> I the could dad, be you know the dad was gay and i was like hold on this is the same character that played omar i was like is he touching into his omar mm. you know from the wire <laughs> oh my god so you know oh, i live man. in atlanta where you have celebrity sightings all the time i mean you just always see these people one of mm -hmm. my most bizarre <laughs> atlanta celebrity sighting experiences oh can i tell this story i was at Publix. uh <laughs> i was at this grocery store in atlanta and i saw mm -hmm. this dude and i was like <laughs> i promise you i was like why is this dude trying to look like michael k williams you know i just literally thought that this dude was just trying i don't know why that was the first thing that came to my mind i started looking at mm -hmm. him i was like well he kind of looks like michael k but then i noticed that the people in the store were kind of acting different like acting kind of strange so then i was like mm -hmm. oh my god that's michael k williams and i wanted to um, you know, get his autograph or something. Like I would never in a million years do that. Like, I mean, right. but because of him, you know, my dream has always been for him to play the poet Essex, Essex Simfield. I was like, he needs to play Essex Simfield. But um, you should yeah, have told I saw, him. I was, well, I didn't realize until like, I, it finally clicked. Cause I really, I didn't, I was like, why is Michael K. Williams here? But then um, <laughs> yeah, sure enough, it took me a minute before I kind of figured out. And I saw other people kind of like, you know, going up to him and I was like, oh, that's who that is. But it was, really bizarre um mm -hmm. and he's definitely someone that i would have you know probably you know been like oh can i have your autograph um but i've run into like mm -hmm. quite a few people there was another michael that used to be on 
Project Runaway. I think he passed away. Oh, yeah. He years. did pass away. Mm-hmm. At the same know. Publix, I ran into him, you oh. know. <laughs> I don't know what it was about that grocery store, but like, all the steps <laughs> being there. Um, yeah. That is so funny. That is funny. But, um, I, you know, Lovecraft Country was, the, I mean, this has been, 2020 yeah. was a crazy, crazy, insane, effed up year. But it Lovecraft was. Country was definitely one of the, the high points. The highlights, yeah. And also on HBO Max was Legendary. Oh, with, Legendary, uh, The ballroom yeah. competition show. So they were, they had their black gay content down. H- HBO's, yeah, HBO was kind of kind of giving it to us a little bit. I know. It brought me back to like, you know, the Oz and Wire days. <laughs> you know, I used to, tell, I used to, my running joke was always in high school, Oh, is this politically incorrect? I used to always say that Oz was kind of like our queerest folk. Cause it was like, again, it's like, you know, one of the few, this is like what, 97, 98, mm-hmm. 96, where you saw, I mean, perhaps the context in which the same, you know, the uh, the the same sex or the, um, uh, you know, the, the black male on male kind of uh, sexual direction right. was happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it was, a bit problematic, but it was definitely <laughs> one of the just in terms of seeing like black queer representations. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, not by any means great representations, not you know, but it was like wow, this is you know to even see any kind of like sexuality on TV was just oh my god, crazy. Yeah, it was. It's, I could talk about that for days. For days, yeah. I could talk about that because it's just I don't know. It's just. I could talk about black media, black gay media. Is, is there much of a community with black gay media makers? Do you think like are are there like networks that y'all have or? You know, I think there are. Um, I mean, I'm in Delaware, so it's nothing here. <laughs> but I can always create it, of course. But um, you know, I think that there are some. I just don't know about them. Um, so I'm not going to say there aren't none because I just, you know, I don't know. Um, but I definitely think that there are a few, especially like in the New York area. And it might be some in Atlanta as well. Mm. Might be some in Atlanta as well. Um, I want to just touch on one article that I found that I want to get your opinion on, which is Reggie Greer, um, who was named White House Senior Advisor on LGBTQ Issues. Um... He's a he's a black gay man um, who was the LGBTQ plus vote uh, director for Joe Biden's presidential campaign, and now he has a job in the White House. Um, what's your take on that? What's your opinion on that? I think it's great. Kudos to him. Um, you know, I certainly believe that we're in this moment now where we see mm-hmm. black lgbtq plus people openly you know black queer folks in all kinds of positions and all kinds of roles and yeah i certainly hope that he uses the platform that he has earned to really elevate our community and continue to be accountable um, what about yourself what are your thoughts um i definitely i first off joe biden is from delaware where i'm from and um oh, okay. so in Wilmington, Delaware. And so um, you know, I think that he's definitely um 
I think definitely Joe Biden one has done his, you know, part on diversifying his his staff and his administration. Um, you know, I think it said, you know, in the article that he, you know, has already hired like a number of, you know, it says he's one of more than uh, 50 LGBTQ plus appointees in the Biden administration so far. Mm. So um, Joe Biden's definitely doing his thing. I definitely think that um, it's a great, it's great for us, you know, for Reggie Greer to be named into that, um, into that position. Um, and, you know, I think it's a number of gay politicians. Uh, it's a, another black gay politician in New York um, that just got appointed as well um, in a position in New York. Uh, but I think that we'll see more, you know. Do you have black... any political ambitions? No, they do not want me in office. Let me tell you. <laughs> Let me tell you, I can barely work in an office setting, okay? I don't even know what I would do if I was, you know, I, it was me being in Wilmington, Delaware. I was like, I think one day I could possibly run for mayor of Wilmington, Delaware. See? Um, that was, and that definitely was in the back of my mind probably a couple months ago and um one they never had a black gay mayor before um but you know that we know of no good job you know you should totally you should totally run you could be the home the hometown hero make you know comes i don't even want to live here so i'm not going to run (laughs) you can't see see if you want to be mayor you can't say stuff like i don't want to live here so (laughs) make sure you edit that part out (laughs) i know but i mean don't get me wrong i love wilmington delaware but the point in my life right now i don't think that i want to be here no i moved from new york you know back from new york down back to delaware when the pandemic happened so Um. um I don't want to, you know, so it wasn't like it was kind of a little bit forced on me that I moved back to Delaware, but um, definitely thinking about my next move. <laughs> you think you'll go back to New York? You know, that was my goal. I always wanted, since I was 18, I always wanted to live and work in New York and live that New York life, mm-hmm. work for a magazine, planning events for magazines and and I can say I did that for three years mm. um, and I lived my dream, you know, mm. but as I say, a chapter always ends. Mm. And I think that that chapter ended. And now I'm just trying to set myself up for the next chapter. I don't even know what that's going to be. All right. Next chapter. <laughs> I'm still living in this chapter now. You know, I thought <laughs> I thought that. So I, I, mm, I called myself moving to New York. <laughs> <laughs> in 2014 mm-hmm. uh, like right when I was starting CMP and yeah I thought I, I, I thought I was I thought I could do the New York life and I got up there and I was like ooh I'm a southern boy like, I didn't realize how southern I was <laughs> until I moved to New York and I was just mm-hmm. like you know what I like Atlanta I think I love New York New York's amazing I was just like I'm but I think I need to live live in Atlanta so mm-hmm. I love to visit Right. But I realized, right. I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not cut out for this. Because, you yeah. know, like you, I think I had this idea. I was like, oh, I want to be a New York writer and have this kind of. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, no, that's not going to work It's tough. Here. 
it is tough and i'm surprised that i lasted three and a half years up there so that is incredible um, yeah and on my own and just you know i was like mom i got the job i'm moving and then she started crying and all that stuff so but i think my next move might be dc it i love be- dc so much mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's close to home um and you know like i said with this whole chapter thing it's like i'm not tied down you know i'm not married i'm not in a relationship i have no kids so it's like i can literally move anywhere i want to um atlanta definitely was in the back of my mind um Uh, all right now don't say anything bad (laughs) i hear i hear a butt coming (laughs) be nice atlanta definitely was in the back of my mind um but you know, I have really nothing bad, bad to say about Atlanta. I think Ebony um, Magazine is coming down here, so. Really? Yeah. I think they're mm. going to reopen a digital something in yeah. Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Maybe I'll try and get in contact with someone from Ebony. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I have a it's master's the- in publishing, so. I know, that's right. Mag- magazines is like, I'm a nerd when it comes to that. But no, I really love Atlanta. I definitely think that, you know, what I want to accomplish in my career and goals, I definitely want to, I think that would be a great, um, a great city for me. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. I don't know what God is going to do. <laughs> I know, right? You just got to trust, trust the journey. Yeah, so I want to get into In My Bag, the next segment. Um, So In My Bag is just a saying, you know, that we have, and it's just what got you in your feelings. You know, it could be good. It could be bad. Um, You know, what has you in your feelings? You know, I'm always in my bag about something. (laughs) Always. And it's not like, it could be about you know, guys, it could be about my family, it could just be about work, but I'm always in my bag about something. Um, so I'll start what got me in my bag, and then I want to know what got you in your bag. Um, so what got me in my bag is, you know, I think that what got me in my bag is me trying to find my purpose. Mm. And I say that because these past few months, you know, I just been trying to find who I know who I am as an individual, you know, as, you know, a man, as a black gay man, I know who I am. But when it comes to my career, I have no, I don't know my purpose. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm struggling with that because um, one, I feel like that no i don't want to work for someone i have all these questions you know i don't want to work for anyone you know i want to work you know just with me i just want to be an entrepreneur i feel like i am an entrepreneur at heart and i've been struggling to make that next step in that leap and excuse me it's another it's a few reasons why you know it's definitely stability you know i think that's a big thing um and you know, a lot of people say it's a failure, huh, baby. No, I know my, <laughs> I know I'm a very skilled individual. I know I'm not going to fail, um, and I re- I'm going to refuse to fail. Um, that's not it. I think what it is is just 
me being scared and me just taking that next step and not knowing. You know, it's like that not knowing <laughs> is like a big wall up in front of me. You know, I feel like I'm just standing in front of a brick wall and I don't know how to get around it. I don't know if I should walk around it. I don't know if I should just jump over it. I don't know. And so, and it's a number of people, you know, in my, you know, age group, you know, with millennials that are really struggling in the same thing, you know, they don't want to work for anyone else, but you know, what does that look like? You know, um, so that I've been in my bag about that probably since the beginning of 2021. Um, and did something, so, did something trigger trigger that in the beginning of the purpose conversation? Was there like something that happened? Um, I don't. You know, it 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 was a lot of stuff that happened, and you know, when I was in New York and I switched jobs, I worked for a very toxic person, and you know, who gave off a lot of toxic energy. And mind you, it was a black person, and so. That happened and then, you know, I go, you know, I get laid off from my job and, you know, I don't work. And during that process of the summertime, I started working on stuff that I like. And, you know, I started, you know, trying to rebuild my podcast and figuring out, you know, um, what I want to do with that. You know, do I want to extend it into other brands and start my own company, you know, around you know black gay culture and you know planning different events and stuff like that and then i get picked up by another company and it's kind of like you know it's some toxicity within that and i'm just mm. like oh, God. <laughs> something <laughs> else to deal with you know and you know it's just you know i'm just like i'm over it i just want to work on stuff that I like, stuff that I enjoy, because I want to wake up every day knowing that, you know, one, that I'm hopefully touching someone and I'm making some sort of like, um, you know, positive impact on something or somebody. Um, you know, I want to wake up just enjoying my job. I want to wake up, you know, I just want to wake up really happy every single day. And I know, of course, you, sometimes you don't, but majority of times I definitely want to. And um, I think that I'm definitely a skilled individual um, where I can do that. It's just doing it. Um, so I don't know. I have, a, I have a number of passions and I'm trying to just um, work on them, you know, work on each of them a little at a time and not trying to overextend myself. So, but I mean, like I said, it's people in my, you know, a lot of my friends are going through the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you're an entrepreneur. Can you give me some advice? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, the best advice I ever received from someone was to, to bet on myself. And I know it sounds like something you hear, like movie, you know, bad movie dialogue or something. Or, mm -hmm. But it just, I was, I was out to lunch with with this person, and she was like, you know, I chose a bet on myself, and it just resonated, like it resonated with me. 
Um, but yeah, I can tell you um, when I, so September, 2014, I'll never forget it. I came back to Atlanta from New York <laughs> and you know, my father had just passed away. So I, I came to New York, I got, I got to Atlanta on a Friday, essentially said goodbye to my dad. He died like the next day, Saturday. Oh my um, God. Mm -hmm, 2014 so my dad died you know me and my best friend we our friendship uh kind of uh disintegrated essentially mm -hmm. and i mean i just had like all these sort of life challenges life changes that happened at once it just came at me but there was something about waking up every day and being able to determine my destiny each day that I got up that just that held me together I mean it was some of the hardest one of the hardest times I've ever gone through and also some of the the, the best like when I was on in the beginning of the hustle just getting up trying to figure out how to how to how to move stuff and how to navigate and just being able to to really determine my destiny each morning I was so grateful for that and again even though some of the darkest days of my of my life it was mm -hmm. also like that got me through being an entrepreneur. Like if I had a nine to five that that was pressing me, I don't think I could have gotten through that in the same way. Right. Um, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I, honestly, I, you know, my advice isn't my advice to any entrepreneur is it's not a it's it's not an emotional decision. I mean, it's it's maybe some level of instinct. I just say have a plan. Like whatever it is that you want to do, what's your plan to make money? And if you can figure out, if you have a plan to make enough money to sustain yourself as an entrepreneur, I say do it. If you don't have a plan mm -hmm. to make enough money to sustain yourself as an entrepreneur, you may want to think about it. Now, some people will say, you know, if you have a plan B, then it, then if being an entrepreneur, if you have a plan B, that means that you're not serious about being an entrepreneur. I don't know if I would say that. I would just say, you know, have a plan, like have it, have it figured out. It doesn't have to be like not a formal business plan, but just some, some sense of, this is the gap. This is this is the this is the gap that I'm filling, and this is how I'm gonna sustain myself. But if you know, a lot of people talk about. I mean, I can, I honestly feel like. I mean, of all the things I'm interested in, and of all my passions, I think that being an entrepreneur was the first time I felt like I. That feeling of um, it's like breathing. <laughs> that Oprah mm -hmm, talks about. Mm -hmm, like, that's mm -hmm. what it kind of felt like for me. It was like, this is what I've been wanting my entire life. And I didn't know, I didn't know it. Like, I didn't know that this is what I've wanted to be an entrepreneur. You know, I think certainly mm -hmm. for black gay folks, I mean, I didn't really have any models that I, that were close to me. So in some ways I felt like I was kind of um, making it up as I, as I went along, but right. yeah, I, honestly can say that being an entrepreneur is one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I wish I had done it earlier. I think now I'm in a space of thinking more broadly about, well, what are the other, how can I further expand my, my, my work? How can I diversify the things that I can do? So, you know, mm -hmm. I've been kind of focused mm -hmm. on like, you know, one or two parts of my business over the last seven years, but I've been thinking more about you know how i can further expand or extend but yeah i mean i don't i can't i, I don't I, I i hesitate to say what i can never do like a never but it would be hard for me to go back to working in a cubicle you know what i mean like it right, would be right right it would be you know anything's possible i don't ever take anything for granted but that since i've been an entrepreneur i felt like 
it almost feels like this is the first thing I felt really, really good at. Like, this is what I need to be doing. Mm. And, you know, I think I'm going to get to that point. Um, and what's, holding, what's holding you back? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I definitely feel that. How, how um, old are you? I'm 32. Oh, please. Uh, you you know, <laughs> I think, okay, let me not, because, you know, if it, if it goes left over, like Charles said, do it, and I did it. But I think 32 is an amazing time to, to take some risks, because otherwise, you never want to look back and say, you know, I could have been, you know, you never want to look back with regret, right? Right. And I think that the whole New York thing, the whole New York move, um, that really stamped that like I can do whatever I want, you know. Um, me having this big goal and this this big dream that I always just like envisioned came to life, and from there, that's when I was like, John, you can do anything that you want, mm. you know. If you accomplish this, you can really accomplish anything. See, my New York experience was where I I had everything that I thought I wanted and I realized I didn't want any of it. And mm -hmm. it was, and I almost had to like start over. I was 33 actually when I moved to New York. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was like, I had everything I thought I wanted. I was like, I'm in New York, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, I'm writing. And you know, I have this whole life and I'm, <laughs> there's some other parts, but. <laughs> I had the life that I always imagined for myself and mm. I got it and I realized I didn't want any of it, that I did, that it actually wasn't what I wanted. And there's mm. something very, there's something incredible about attaining all the things that you thought you wanted and then realizing that it actually isn't, isn't in fact what, it's the sign of fact what you really want. And then you have yeah. to discover, well, what is it that I really, really want? And honestly, you know, the entrepreneur piece, like that was much more closer to, to my happiness than you know, my right. life before. Right, right. Yeah, I think I'm going to get it together. <laughs> I know I'm going to get it together. It's just it's going to take some time yeah. and some thinking and some planning. But I think I'm definitely putting some, you know, putting some stuff in place that yeah. um, will allow me to that will allow me to do that. Mm. Um, but you know, we'll see. That's what definitely has gotten me in my bag, and it's definitely got me in my bag. This you know, from the start of 2021. Um, last year was a whole different story, but <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that about, um, I don't even think I talked about it, but um, yeah, so we'll see. What got you in your bag? Well, you said it could also mean a good thing, right? Like yeah, something's positive. It could mean something positive. Well, you know, it's also kind of a plug. I'm really excited about the CMP Summit next week. It's March 17th and 18th. Mm -hmm. And this year, our summit's going to focus on lessons learned from Bayard Rustin, who was an you know one of the probably one of the great civil rights leaders and also organizers of the 20th century. Probably one of the greatest organizers of all time. And we're gonna spend some time together and reflect on some of the lessons learned from his from his life, from his leadership. We're gonna have a, a panel focused on Bayard Rustin's friendship and influence of Coretta Scott King. So that's gonna be the first panel. We're gonna talk about Bayard Rustin and his relationship to Omega Sci-Fi, the fraternity. You know, he was an Omega. So we're gonna talk to an Omega, uh, a member of the fraternity about like how, you know, just 
about Beard Rustin and his relationship to the Omega Sci-Fi fraternity. Um, we're going to talk about Omega uh, Beard Rustin and, you know, he was uh, on staff at the uh, SCLC. So we're going to take these different parts of Beard's life and really just attempt to extract lessons learned. And I'm, I couldn't be more thrilled with this um, with this summit that's coming up. You can find information about it at our on our website at thecounternarrative.org. That's thecounternarrative.org. And also um, on our social media, you can just go to at CMP Tribe on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, I'm just really, really excited about this summit. Yeah, I'm definitely going to post it on my social media. Thank so you. So it's going to be posted everywhere. Thank you. Um, do you, uh, how many events do you normally have a year? It varies. You know, of mm -hmm. course, with the quarantine, it's, you know, a lot of our events are virtual. But this year, um, so we have CMP Summit next week. We also have our annual um, our annual event um, in, in October every year. So this year it's CMP at seven. So we're just going to do like a sort of celebration of our work and just commemorate mm -hmm. just, you know, the legacy of, of CMP. So that's in October. Um, we also have some more events coming up in the summer. We're going to have an event in August. Uh, well, I don't want to say too much. We will have some additional <laughs> programming, but our standard okay. events are also, um, you know, again, the CMP Summit every March, CMP at seven. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have, um, you know, programming throughout the year, various uh, virtual events, webinars, workshops, discussions, uh, summits and programs. We have and do you a, partner with other organizations as well? We love um, to partner to with other programming and stuff. We absolutely love to partner with other organizations. We partner with, oh my God, we partner with everybody. We're completely polyamorous as an organization. Um, mm -hmm. We partner, you know, we partner with Black Gay Stuck at Home. They do these film screenings virtually every every month. We love, you know, they do great work. There's this a group called Brave Soul Collective that we partner with often based in DC, Monty Wolf. Um, you know, we partner with LGBT Detroit in Detroit. So we partner with different organizations nationally i think it's just really important for us to work together and collaborate so that's right. a part of our programmatic right. work we also mm -hmm. have a beautiful online publication called the reckoning shout out to darian aaron who you also which i to. love which i mentioned <laughs> earlier <laughs> uh, check it out at thereckoning.org um and you know we do we cover black lgbtq atlanta stories and life and experiences and um just such a beautiful 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 project that that i have an opportunity to be a part of we have a monthly video uh, broadcast uh um, largely on facebook live but also it's posted on youtube called mm -hmm. revolutionary health hosted by michael ward shout out to michael ward he's a, just an amazing amazing host and revolutionary health grapples with black gay men's health and wellness from a holistic perspective uh, and we just have, you know, various topics. I think our most, um, you know, recent topic was around, you know, black, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine and what we need to know as black gay right. men. Right. So please check the revolutionary health out um, on our YouTube and also on our Facebook lot, our Facebook uh, uh, page as well. But I'm just really, I'm really grateful uh, just for the, having the opportunity to do this work. I mean, I just would never dream that I would be able to be a part of such an, such an incredible institution and yeah, every day I'm very happy. Well, if you need an event person, I'm an event person. <laughs> <laughs> I 
All right, I play all events right. for a living, so um, really, okay, for conferences and stuff like that. So, oh, um, okay, definitely will give you my insights and you know advice on anything that you need. Please do, and please um, don't judge us too harshly. Don't come to our summit and be like, mm-hmm, Charles, yeah, see, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll that definitely talk. That person does. We go to other <laughs> events and we critique how they do it. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll definitely um, talk. I mean, I just in terms of how you you know run this podcast, and mm-hmm. I've just been so impressed with just the seamlessness of it i'm like okay you're like on top of your business like let me make sure <laughs> you know every game everyone says that they're like oh my god you like gave us a show flow and you sent us a calendar invite and you i was like i just have a corporate background and i'm mm. like if i want to like build my brand like i have to run it very professional you know and it's all me so you know I'm creating like the, you know, the promo cards and everything like that. Like that's all me. So, um, you know, I just want to, you know, I just want to be professional. <laughs> when the people, um, when the people send you a run a show or a show flow, you know, they're serious about their business. When I saw that oh. run a show, I was like, you know what? <laughs> He's not playing. So let me not play. <laughs> yep. So I was like, and I know it was a little bit, you know, later in time, but I was like, I have to have him on, you know? Um, so I definitely, again, I want to thank you. One, no, thank you. For, I'm so honored. Um, having me, I mean, having me, having you on um, this podcast. Um, I, I think it went really good. I really, you know, enjoyed the conversation. I felt like that we could talk more about a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I probably will have you back on, especially to promote, you know, other things that are going on, you know, with CMP. Um you know, and everything that, you know, you're doing. So, you know, as an individual. So, yeah. So I expect you back, you know, if not this season, then next season, I want to have you back on, especially um, to talk about other things. I want to be on the, I want to be on a season premiere for season three. So either I want to be on a season, I want to either be on the, I either want to be on the reunion show or I want to be on a season premiere. So. I got you. I got you. <laughs> but thank you so much. I want to um, definitely uh, just, you know, this was an experience and I definitely, I, I'm going to, I'm not going to lie. I definitely was intimidated to be interviewing you oh, no. um, because I was like, oh my God, he's so accomplished and I have to get my shit together because I'm not going to be fumbling and all that. <laughs> but um, definitely, I, uh, it was definitely great talking so I'm gonna thank you again thank you I'm just in my bag, bag.